As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This is Early Stuart England, Episode 91, The Short Parliament. After our excursion to Ireland last episode, we jump right back into the thick of things in the Scottish crisis. After two years of failed negotiations and an abortive military campaign, Charles was finally ready to ask for Parliament's help. The Privy Council sent out the writs for parliamentary elections on the 12th of February, 1640. It would be the first Parliament in over ten years. Charles was driven by necessity. He had tried to fight without parliamentary support the year before, but had backed down rather than take his ramshackle army into battle. If he wanted to fight again in 1640, he would need Parliament's financial backing. But the king was not going into Parliament cap in hand. He had reason to feel he was negotiating from a position of strength. Thomas Wentworth had arrived from Ireland months earlier and injected some much-needed optimism into Charles's inner circle. For two years, Charles had been told by Scots like Treguer and Hamilton that he had to offer concessions to the Covenanters. The previous summer, his English advisers had warned him that his army was too weak to beat the Scottish rebels. Now, for the first time, Charles had an advisor urging him to dig in his heels and stand firm. Wentworth promised military and financial support from Ireland. He also assured Charles that a strong display of royal power at an English parliament would unite the kingdom against the foreign rebels in the north. If Parliament refused to help, Wentworth assured the king, then the crown would be justified in mobilizing the kingdom without Parliament. The people would see the lawyers of Parliament for the self-interested jackals they were. Faced with a foreign army on its northern border, England would stand with its king. But as confident as Charles and Wentworth were, Parliament would hinge on the mood of the kingdom. Would the Scottish military threat capture the imagination of the House of Commons? Or would they focus on addressing the grievances of the 1630s? In the weeks before the Parliament began, the signs pointed towards a national focus on past grievances, especially ship money. Charles and his Privy Council had only pursued limited collections of ship money in the year before. They were well aware that the men and women of England were taking on a significant burden in supporting the First Bishop's War that year. Charles worried that asking his subjects for the usual amount of ship money contributions at the same time he was asking for help building an army would be a bridge too far. Therefore, the 1639 ship money writs only asked for £70,000, roughly one-third the normal amount. As 1639 came to an end, and it became clear that Charles was calling a parliament for the beginning of 1640, many in the kingdom assumed ship money would be put on hold until after that parliament. 
surely one of the issues debated in the session would be the legality of ship money, so it only made sense to delay any collections until Parliament had its say. This seemed to be what Charles was thinking too, as the autumn of 1639 came and went without the normal call for collections for the following spring. But in December 1639, just when the king confirmed that there would be a Parliament, new ship money writs suddenly went out. What's more, Charles was asking for the full £200,000. Ship money was always going to be in the minds of voters in the elections, but the surprise call for another round of collections ensured that it would be front and centre for most electorates. The collections themselves moved at a snail's pace, as everyone put off paying until after Parliament weighed in. It seems predictable that pushing for ship money in December 1639 would poison the atmosphere of Parliament at the beginning of 1640. So what exactly was Charles up to here? It's possible that Charles and Wentworth's overconfidence led them to make a mistake. Perhaps another round of ship money collection was intended as a show of strength, proof heading into Parliament that the king had other options. He could walk away from parliamentary demands and still fund his Scottish war. It's also possible that Wentworth told Charles that he needed to prove ship money was still viable. In the tradition of Salisbury's great contract, the king might be able to give up the right to ship money in exchange for cash from Parliament. Charles needed to prove he could still collect, in other words, that ship money still had value as a bargaining chip. Whatever the reason, the call for ship money collections raised the stakes of the parliamentary elections. These elections were the most hotly and systematically contested in English history to that point. In 1604, the first parliament of this podcast, there had been 13 contested elections, in other words, those in which the electorate were actually given a choice of candidates. Even the high-stakes war parliaments of the 1620s had an average of 20-odd contested elections. In the elections of early 1640, there were at least 62 contested elections. Even that number might be understating things, as in many counties and boroughs, the candidates supported by the crown or local elites stepped out of the race rather than face the humiliation of losing to a popular candidate. For the first time, voting in many contests was driven by a single issue, ship money, rather than the stage managing of the ruling elite. Some refused to cast their vote for anyone who had participated in the collection of ship money, and many successful candidates touted their credentials as ship money refusers. In Somerset, a small group of anti-ship money agitators called themselves the Robins, a reference to Robin Hood. Throughout the kingdom, similar groups of small-time freeholders indicated their intention to vote on the issues, particularly ship money, not whichever candidate the elites chose for them. However, we should be wary of seeing the elections of 1640 as a clear demonstration of the ideological principles of the men of England. In many communities, the grievance of ship money was used to settle personal scores within the gentry elite. We're not necessarily seeing the lower class of freeholder standing up and having his voice heard through his vote, so much as one segment of the elite turning on their colleagues who had benefited from Charles's 1630s regime. The election results also weren't just a grassroots movement of discontent in the provinces. There is evidence of deliberate national coordination by the enemies of ship money. In Essex, the Earl of Warwick urged the Calvinist ministers he protected to deliver campaign messages from their pulpits. He also used the Essex trained bands as a county network to get out the vote. Militia officers did their best to convince, or just plain intimidate, men into voting for Warwick's preferred candidates. Warwick also was in close contact with his friends in the Providence Island Company, who had a shared interest in making sure dissenting voices got into Parliament. 
That being said, the defining feature of the 1640 elections was the prominence of a politically engaged small freeholder class of voter. Whether they emerged organically as independent voters, or were encouraged and exploited by elites with an agenda, they were now a force to be reckoned with. In a sense, this was the beginning of the end for a centuries-old parliamentary system. From now on, elections would become more and more difficult to manage. The spread of literacy and the long-running ideological battles between parliamentary privilege and royal prerogative had politicized the population. In Norfolk, Thomas Woodhouse complained that he saw his fellow gentry working and counterworking to purchase vulgar blasts of acclamation. Such activity would increasingly become the norm. In the end, the elections were a blow to the king's hopes. It was now unlikely that he would be able to avoid dealing with ship money if he wanted Parliament to fund the war. In fact, even before the newly elected ministers could take their seats, a flood of petitions from around the kingdom made their way to Westminster. Some complained about ship money, others about Laud's anti-Calvinist church, and some complained about having to house soldiers during the previous year's campaign. One petition from a farmer named John Davenport called on Parliament to solve a long list of ills affecting the kingdom, including the abnormal number of sparrows eating his grain. After an eleven-year absence, Parliament's ability to solve England's problems had taken on a somewhat mythical status. When Parliament opened on the 13th of April, 1640, Charles still hoped the Scottish military threat, rather than grievances like ship money, would be the focus of conversation. Despite all signs to the contrary, he was not being totally unreasonable. You could make the argument that the Covenanter army perched on the northern border was a greater threat to national security than any of the emergencies in the 1620s. In such a crisis, it was not unimaginable that Parliament would agree to address the imminent threat now, and save grievances for later. This was exactly what Charles planned to ask of his Parliament when he spoke before both houses to formally begin proceedings. The royal procession to Westminster was a hot-ticket item, with homeowners selling spots by their upper-floor windows to view the king. Less wealthy spectators were advised to line the streets by five in the morning, any later than that, and they would not be able to see anything. Once inside the Westminster complex, Charles opened the Parliament with a short speech then, as customary, directed the Lord Keeper, John Finch, to outline his proposed agenda for the session. Finch's speech was long, and focused almost entirely on the reopening of the war with Scotland. The king would have time to consider the kingdom's grievances, he said, after the immediate crisis was resolved. But the most important part of Finch's speech was what he didn't say. Not once did he use the words ship money. For many in the audience, this was especially galling, because Finch had been the Speaker of the House that John Eliot's allies had held down in his chair the last time Parliament was in session, back in 1629. Finch had later risen to the rank of Chief Justice of the Court of Common Pleas. In that capacity, he had been the presiding judge in John Hampton's ship money trial. Finch embodied the governing system of the 1630s that many of the Parliament men had come to Westminster to dismantle. Yet here he was, haughtily laying out an agenda for them. It was one of the most poorly received speeches in parliamentary history. But before Parliament could express its outrage, the king suddenly stepped forward again to offer some concluding remarks. In his hand, he held a letter, sent by the Covenanter government to Louis XIII, King of France, but intercepted by English agents. In it, the Scots asked for France's support in their conflict with Charles. What galled the king most of all was that the Covenanters addressed Louis as our king. Not an uncommon form of address in official diplomatic correspondence, 
but an affront to their actual king, Charles. This was the ace up Charles's sleeve. He was sure that the thought of a foreign army, supported by England's traditional rival perched on its northern border, would demand immediate attention. This was an existential crisis, the likes of which England had not seen since the Hundred Years' War centuries ago. However, Charles was disturbed to see that this revelation did not rouse his audience in outrage. The conference broke up in sullen silence, and everyone awaited anxiously to see what would happen when the two houses opened up for debate the following day. In the Commons, Secretary of State Francis Winbank opened proceedings by rereading the treasonous letter the Scots had sent to France. He explained that perhaps the crowd had been too loud the day before, and not everyone had fully grasped the letter's significance. Winbank read it aloud in its original French, as well as an English translation. But everyone had heard the letter the first time. The king's ace had failed to move the House of Commons. Instead, a cabal of Providence Island company men seized the initiative. We've been tracking this group for some time, the Orthodox Calvinists who have been excluded from political relevance since 1629. For more than a decade, they met regularly to manage their Providence Island company and plot their return to the avenues of power. We've seen two failed attempts so far, the Earl of Warwick's attempt to pressure Charles into calling a parliament in early 1637, and their attempt to use John Hampton as a test case to overturn ship money. Both had failed, and this was their last chance. As the Providence Island crew will become important in the next few episodes, it's worthwhile to revisit a few names. The group included prominent aristocrats like the Earl of Warwick, the naval veteran and grandee of the County of Essex, and the Earl of Bedford, perhaps the wealthiest man in the kingdom, with his property developments in Covent Garden and the newly drained Fenlands in East Anglia. In the Commons, the group was led by John Pym, longtime legal advisor and associate of both Warwick and Bedford. He was the treasurer of the Providence Island Company and had worked on John Hampton's legal team in the ship money trial. If there are two things you should probably remember about Pym, they were his mastery of parliamentary committee procedure and his lifelong crusade against Arminianism. Both would become dominant features of English politics over the next three years. These men intended to use Parliament and the Scottish threat as leverage to impose a new political program on Charles. So long as the Covenanter army threatened England, the king needed money. And Parliament was now, surely, finally, the king's only option. But rather than give Charles the money he needed in exchange for promises of reforms, the Providence Island men had a bolder plan. They would broker a peace with the Scots by returning England to the true Calvinist path. Parliament would legislate Laud's anti-Calvinist church out of existence and abolish illegal taxation schemes like ship money, making kings dependent on parliamentary taxation forever. The reason they were so sure this would lead to peace with the Covenanters was that they had already opened up a treasonous correspondence with Scottish leaders. Key here was John Clotworthy, who we last met traveling from Ireland to Scotland to warn the Covenanters of Charles's military plans against them in the summer of 1638. Now, 18 months later, he was serving in English Parliament, the Earl of Bedford having secured him a seat. Through Clotworthy, the Providence Island group was beginning to coordinate with the Covenanters in Scotland. If England returned to the Orthodox Calvinist fold, the religious liberties of the Scots would be far more secure. With Laud's church dead and buried, the whole motivation for the rebellion would disappear. But the Providence Island men were playing a dangerous game. 
if word of their treason got out, and treason it undoubtedly was to conspire with the rebels, Parliament would turn against them. The key to the session would be capturing the mood of the House of Commons. Charles had made the first attempt by highlighting the Scottish military threat, but when that failed to spur the men of the Commons to action, the Providence Island group had their opportunity. The first to speak after Winbag's letter-reading performance was Harbottle Grimston, MP for Colchester, one of Warwick's patronage towns in Essex. Grimston acknowledged that the Scottish threat was real, but argued that England faced greater threats at home. Foreign enemies could not be defeated until English liberty was assured, and the English church properly defended. But the real star took the stage after Grimston. John Pym rose and spoke for a grueling two hours, filling in the details of the internal threats his colleague had hinted at. Pym identified three distinct threats to England. First, a deliberate assault on Parliament as an institution. The contentious dissolution of 1629, the attempts to raise revenue without Parliament, and the refusal to call one before the Scottish War. Second, Pym saw a threat to the English Church. Arminians had captured the Church and were doing their best to bring in Catholicism through the back door. Finally, Pym saw a threat to English liberty, especially property rights. The last 11 years had seen a pattern of attacks on an individual's right to hold property without being subject to the whims of government. Pym wrapped up this tour de force with two conclusions. First, there was a conspiracy of powerful men around the king who were acting against the interests of England. And second, that the greatest ill that had befallen the kingdom over the last decade was the absence of a parliament. It was up to the men now gathered at Westminster to solve both of these problems. As if to further proof his point, Pym's speech was followed by a series of MPs reading out petitions from their constituents, asking Parliament to address a laundry list of grievances that had built up over the past decade. In fact, it's likely that this was a somewhat coordinated set-piece. The performance was successful. Pym had managed to hit a note that resonated within the House of Commons. Aside from its success, two things are worth noting about Pym's strategy. First, the petitions his colleagues read out were clearly modelled on the grassroots petitioning campaign that had fueled the Covenanter movement. Whether this was through active consultation with the Scots, or merely English activists mimicking Scottish practice, it would be a trend that continued in the future. Scotland had set the model for a successful revolution. Secondly, Pym's audience was not just the House of Commons. As always, Pym had written out his speech beforehand which of course helped him stay on course for two hours, but also allowed for his words to be copied and distributed immediately. The Providence Island men intended to put pressure on Charles in Parliament, but they also wanted to ensure the wider population, especially in London, kept the pressure on the king too. Again, the Scottish model provided the example. It was the men and women in the streets of Edinburgh that had ultimately broken the king's Scottish government. Londoners might have to similarly rally to Parliament before all this was over. Now more than ever, parliamentary debates were conducted with one eye on the crowds of London. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Meanwhile, the first day of debate in the House of Lords also produced disturbing signs for the king. Perhaps sensing that the mood of the house was not with the crown, William Laud, Charles's most reliable ally in the upper house, suggested that the lords adjourn for two days. The bishops would be absent, as they were busy setting up the convocation, a representative of the kingdom's clergy that ran parallel to Parliament. As bishops constituted half of the upper house, Laud's suggestion was not entirely unreasonable. But this was more than just a procedural nicety. The bishops as a whole were a reliable block of support Charles could count on. In their absence, the crown's position would be significantly weakened. Alarmingly, the lords refused Laud's request. Viscount Say, who we've seen before as a member of the Providence Island Group, explicitly argued that the presence of the bishops was not necessary for the lords to deliberate. This had some disturbing echoes of the removal of bishops from Scotland's political system. Considering Parliament had gathered to back a war to impose bishops on Scotland, this was not a promising show of support. So on the first day of open debate, in both the Commons and the Lords, Providence Island men had scored some initial victories and built momentum. This momentum carried through the early days of Parliament. On the 18th of April, the Commons set up a committee to investigate the chaos surrounding the dissolution of 1629. Oliver St. John, the lawyer who had represented Hampton in the ship money trial, and a close associate of both Warwick and Bedford, began looking into the legal precedents of the king's right to dissolve Parliament against its will. This was especially provocative considering a. St. John's membership in the Providence Island Club, and b. the fact that the Scottish Parliament had refused to recognize Charles's right to dissolve their session a few months ago. It was starting to look like Parliament was preparing to make some revolutionary claims about its own authority. Three days later, on the 21st of April, Charles did his best to stop these radical developments before they got out of hand. He called a conference of both houses to attend to him at the banqueting house of Whitehall. While the king silently fumed, Lord Keeper Finch once again reminded the Parliament men of the desperate need for money. One way or another, Charles was fighting a war this summer. If Parliament was going to refuse him speedy supply, best to let him know now, so he could dissolve the session immediately and save everyone a lot of time. As intended, this message spooked many in the House of Commons who had been swept up by Pym's rhetoric. Most men in the Commons wanted to tackle ship money, sure. But if Charles dissolved Parliament right away, what good was all this bold talk of grievances? The natural inclination for consensus that had been ingrained in generations of English political culture took over. Benjamin Rudyard, the late Earl of Pembroke's old client in the Commons, rose and spoke for this moderate majority. Doing his best Jerry Maguire impression, Rudyard employed his fellow Parliament members to trust him, meaning the King, that he may trust us. This was a modification of Rudyard's old Crisis of Parliament speech from the 1620s, in which he argued that the best way to protect English liberty was to ensure that Parliament remained in session. Provoking Charles into a dissolution would be a disaster for everyone. Rudyard's call for calm and compromise lowered the temperature in the House of Commons, but failed to produce what Charles really needed, money. The commons remained focused on grievances. 
Two days later, Charles summoned his Privy Council for an emergency meeting. He could not have been clearer. Parliament would either vote a money or be dissolved. In 48 hours, there had been no sign of a money bill, and so the king felt justified in carrying out his threat. But Charles rarely acted in opposition to his council, and so he gave them the opportunity to talk him out of it. Thomas Wentworth, now firmly established as the king's chief advisor, did just that. Wentworth argued that ultimately Charles may have to dissolve Parliament. But the crucial question in the aftermath would be, who did England blame for the failed Parliament? If the kingdom blamed Charles, his war effort would surely crumble. But if the people of England blamed stubborn radicals in the Commons, then Charles would have the political capital to raise war funds without Parliament. In other words, Wentworth argued, we have to win the PR battle. Rather than dissolution, Wentworth suggested going to the Lords and asking them to put pressure on the Commons to vote the King war funds. This was a dramatic break with custom, as drafting money bills was the exclusive privilege of the Commons. The Lords could merely confirm money bills, not initiate them. But desperate times called for desperate measures. With the King's blessing, Wentworth managed to convince his fellow Lords to urge the Commons to action. This caused the House of Commons to complain that the Upper House was infringing on their privileges. But more importantly, the procedural bickering bought valuable time for moderates to build a compromise. Whether it would be enough time was not entirely clear. Within a week, on the 2nd of May, Charles demanded that the two houses stop their arguing and come up with some money. The king warned that he would treat any delay as a refusal. This time, the king's threat had the desired effect. For the first time, the House of Commons seriously debated money. The mood of the House suggested that if Charles were to make some gesture of good faith, they could, in good conscience, pass a money bill. After a lengthy ten-hour debate, many in the Commons felt that a solemn promise from the King to abolish ship money might be sufficient. This put John Pym and his allies in an awkward position. When Charles was being stubborn and refusing to even talk about ship money, Pym's radical message of rot within the government was attractive to many in the lower house. But now that the King appeared willing to bargain, the moderates were abandoning Pym and the Providence Island program. Pym could try to place more demands on Charles, but if he was too open about his opposition to a deal, he risked alienating his fellow members. In the end, the marathon debate on how to proceed ended without a final resolution. Since it was Saturday, Parliament had the following day off, and would not meet again until Monday, the 4th of May. For the next 48 hours, both the Privy Council and the Providence Island Group planned what to do next. In a Privy Council meeting that Sunday, Wentworth proposed a kind of great contract. Charles should give up ship money in exchange for a one-time payment of £650,000. That would pay for the war, and the men of Parliament could take a victory back to their constituents. Though Charles was loath to give up such a successful revenue stream, it was a pretty good deal. Ship money collections were going very poorly, and there was reason to doubt the project's long-term feasibility. Better to get something for it now. Meanwhile, the Providence Island Group had a series of panic conferences throughout that Sunday. Pym, St. John, Warwick, Bedford, they all saw their chance slipping away. If Charles reached an accord with Parliament, he might well be able to crush the Scots. This would not only remove the leverage Parliament had over the King, but it could very easily expose each of them to treason charges. Who knew what evidence was out there linking them to their Covenanter allies? Something had to be done, not just to save the Kingdom, but to save their lives. 
When Parliament met again on Monday, the Commons spent all day, this time nine hours, debating ship money. Was it legitimate property that Charles could sell? Or was ship money illegal in the first place, and paying the king to recognize that fact would be submitting to extortion? This is more than just an ideological point. Practically speaking, it was possible that widespread resistance had already destroyed ship money as a viable instrument. Would Parliament be paying a hefty price for something of no value? By the end of the day, it seemed that, in principle, the Commons accepted Wentworth's proposal. All that remained was some haggling over the price. The day's session adjourned, with most of the House confident that a resolution would be passed the following day. That night, the Providence Island group realized that their time was fast running out. If they allowed the debate to conclude the next morning, then their grand project would lie dead. Only this time, failure might mean arrest, or even execution. They decided they had no choice. They had to make one last, desperate gamble. For the last few days, Pym had been working on a radical proposal. As part of his ongoing attacks on the men surrounding the king, Pym was going to urge the House to investigate the causes of the Scottish War, and even vote on a resolution proclaiming Parliament's support for the Scots. He had hoped to lay more groundwork to ensure the motion was supported in the House. Thursday, the 7th of May, had been his original target date, but desperation now forced him to move up the timetable. He had to derail the course of Parliament. Meanwhile, at the Palace of Whitehall, Charles and Wentworth were not entirely ignorant of Pym's plans. They may not have known precisely what was coming, but they had long suspected that Pym and his allies were in contact with the Scots. For once, Charles' suspicion that Parliament was being hijacked by a dedicated group of troublemakers was not too far off the mark. Pym and the others had been under close observation by Crown agents. Late on the night of the 4th, or early on the morning of the 5th, Charles learned that Pym was planning something big that morning. In order to beat Pym to the punch, Charles called an emergency 6am meeting of the Privy Council. This time, the King was not asking, he was telling. Parliament had to be shut down. As they met that morning, the Scots were massing an army on the border. The King felt he had been more than reasonable. Parliament had delayed for almost a month. As far as he was concerned, he was justified in going it on his own. Thomas Wentworth arrived late, as he had been suffering from a bout of his chronic stone. He convinced Charles to at least hear out what his Privy Council had to say before making a final decision. But the councillors had correctly read the mood of the king, and they were nearly unanimous in agreeing to the course Charles had already set. I say nearly because one man, the Earl of Northumberland, dissented, but we'll save him for next episode. So, instead of working out the details of the ship money deal, Parliament gathered that morning to hear the dissolution of the session. After an 11-year absence, Parliament sat for less than a month. As a result, the session became known as the Short Parliament. The dissolution made a dramatic impression on the kingdom. The return of Parliament after such a long absence had raised hopes, perhaps unrealistic hopes, that it would unite England and solve the current crisis. That it ended so quickly was disheartening, to say the least. Was the short Parliament doomed to failure from the beginning? Perhaps not. There is evidence that a significant portion of the Commons had come to Westminster looking for a compromise solution. This moderate majority would persist throughout the next two years, even as England hurtled toward civil war. The main obstacle to a compromise like the ship money bargain was the intransigence of a minority of hardliners. Neither the King nor the Providence Island group were bargaining in good faith. They both played to the moderate majority, but neither trusted the other enough to live with the settlement. 
At times, both Pym and Charles might have seemed like moderates, but in reality, they were just trying to make their adversary look radical in comparison. This was turning into a winner-take-all battle, hidden within a wider political community that valued consensus. Only over time would the moderates realize just how intractable the kingdom's political problems had become. For Charles, the more immediate problem was what came next. Just hours after the dissolution, the Privy Council met again to discuss just that. Although he had been an advocate of calling the Parliament, Wentworth now immediately shifted to his post-parliamentary strategy. Parliament had turned down its chance to help the kingdom. Now, Wentworth argued, Charles was loosed and absolved from all rules of government. All sorts of avenues were now fair game in the name of national security. Wentworth claimed he had an Irish army, 10,000 strong, ready to fight for the king. In what would become a notorious speech, Wentworth told Charles that you have an army in Ireland that you may employ here to reduce this kingdom. Wentworth quite obviously meant Scotland, as that was the kingdom being discussed by the council. But enemies of Wentworth argued that this kingdom meant the one he was standing in, England. In other words, with Parliament out of the way, Wentworth intended to use a foreign army to crush English liberty. This was precisely the conspiracy Pym had been warning of. But before any armies could be deployed, Charles and the Privy Council took immediate action in London. Royal officials raided the Earl of Warwick's London residence, as well as the studies of Viscount Say, John Pym, and John Hamden. Lord Brooke, Viscount Say's colonial partner, suffered the indignity of turning out his pockets while officials ransacked his home. They were looking for any evidence of correspondence with the Scots. Although he could not yet prove it, Charles was sure that these guys were working with the Covenanter rebels. Charles commissioned Francis Winbeck, his Secretary of State, to conduct a thorough investigation of both Warwick and Pym, with the eventual goal of bringing treason charges against them. These scenes read like those of a 20th century totalitarian regime, with state officials digging through personal papers in search of treason. But in reality, the king had a precarious hold on the political situation. The dissolution had perhaps saved Parliament from being infected by Pym's treasonous machinations, but it was too late for the streets of London. Pym had been careful to publish his speeches outside of Parliament, and his message of a crypto-Catholic conspiracy at the centre of government had resonated with the crowd. Drawing particular ire was William Laud, the Archbishop of Canterbury. He was, after all, the Armenian that had been undermining the English Church for a decade. And now, all of a sudden, England was waging a war on Scotland's venerable Protestant church. It didn't take a great leap of logic to see the events of the past decade as a clever ploy to bring England by degrees into the Catholic camp. Fueled by Pym's conspiratorial narrative, the population of London saw the dissolution of Parliament as a continuation of this popish plot. Parliament had been about to unmask the evil councillors surrounding the king, and so Laud, the evilest of them all, must have tricked the king into ending the session. By the 11th of May, five days after the dissolution, the grumbling coalesced into an outburst of violence. That weekend happened to be Maytide, an annual festival where apprentices and servants were allowed to ritually cast off their subordinate status. In other words, an ideal environment for some public protest. In the days leading up to the 11th, word went out, calling for an assembly of all men that desire to kill the bishops, who would fain kill us, our wives and children, to gather at St. George's Field, south of London. Apprentices boasted of hunting William the Fox, meaning Laud, and placards went up all around the city, 
blaming Laud and Wentworth for the failed Parliament. Forewarned, the militia of nearby Southwark mustered in St. George's Fields all day, but the crowd merely waited them out. As soon as the militia dispersed, around midnight, a large body of around 3,000 men assembled. Their target was Lambeth Palace, the archbishop's residence two miles to the west, perched on the opposite side of the river from Westminster. Laud had been forewarned as well, and fortified the palace, including placing cannons on the roof. But when the Southwark militia went home for the night, Laud decided it was time for him to go too. At 11pm, he rode across the Thames to the safety of the King's Palace at Whitehall. He escaped just in time. Shortly before 1am, the crowd arrived at Lambeth. Once it became clear Laud was not there, they dispersed in frustration, but not before destroying some of the palace's outlying gardens and walls. The next morning, Charles did his best to punish the rioters. Ringleaders were identified and placed under arrest at the White Lion, a prison in Southwark. But rather than intimidating the protesters, this enraged them further. The White Lion now became the target of the crowd's anger, and another large group of men broke John Archer, a shoemaker and one of the ringleaders, out of the prison. It took more than a week for the chaos in the streets of London to subside. The violence spread to many of the city's churches that embodied Laud's vision of the beauty of holiness. Decorations were smashed, altars defaced, and ostentatious priestly garb torn apart. The reprisals Charles enacted once he regained control of the situation demonstrated his anxiety and insecurity. Thomas Benstead, a teenager who had used his drum to rally protesters, was drawn and quartered, his body parts put on display all along London Bridge. Charles also ordered the torture of John Archer once he had been reapprehended. It ended up being the last case of judicial torture in English history, with Charles writing the warrants in his own hand. In particular, Charles demanded to know who had orchestrated the protests. Now more than ever, he was convinced that he was dealing with an organized insurrection involving some of the political elite. While the protests gradually ran out of steam in London, two serious complications remained. The first was that London acted, as it so often did, as the center of English society. What happened there gradually made its way to the provinces, whether it was commerce, news, or in this case, disorder. In the days after young Benstead was executed, a bout of panic gripped Colchester in Essex. One night, two girls saw a stranger stuffing rags into the window of a house in town. Suspecting that they were witnessing a Catholic arson plot, the girls raised the alarm. Within hours, a vigilante group of apprentices was scouring the town in search of Catholics to intimidate. The second problem all this posed for Charles was that he still had a war to fight against the Scots. The young apprentices who were in the streets trying to lynch William Laud were the very same young men Charles would need to recruit into his armies. Judging by their recent actions, they did not seem likely to be enthusiastic soldiers in what they saw as a war to impose Laud's church on Scotland. Alarmingly, much of the unrest in May came from within the army itself. In Devon, a unit of soldiers mutinied and murdered their Catholic officer. In several counties, the trained bands failed to assemble when Charles called for a national muster on the 20th of May. Some claimed to be too busy with a game of football, which could not have done much to convince Charles of the dedication of his army. And the king would need a dedicated army. Next time, we'll see who had done a better job of preparing for war during the year-long truce, Charles or the Scots.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit